This is a story of grace. This is a part of David's history when we begin to see perhaps a side of David that we had not previously known about. David has been restrained by God's own hand from being what he could have been. That's a story for each of us, for each of you. You are not as bad as you could be. Not because you are so strong in yourself, so have so much self-restraint, but it is because of God's restraining grace. Out of his love for you, he restrains you from what you could be. There's a, a tendency in each of us to credit ourselves with more than we deserve. We like to point out our best traits and perhaps amplify them and take credit where we can. Uh, I'm reminded of, of the, uh, the soldier, the, the captain who was to bring in Daniel and his friends. Nebuchadnezzar had become enraged when the wise men couldn't, uh, couldn't tell him his dream and interpret it. And so he decided because of the sin of these few men, he would do away with all wise men and all the, uh, the magi. And when the soldier came to Daniel and his friends, they, they asked for time that he would be able to, uh, to pray and, and God would give him the dream. And when the soldier goes back to report to Nebuchadnezzar, it's, it's the report is really all about the soldier and what a good job he had done in finding someone to interpret the dream. And he's there having done nothing. He showed up at Daniel's door to execute him and goes back and tells the king of what he has done to in finding out the king's dream and looking for looking for credit we we like to have take credit and think well of ourselves and our own ability to restrain ourselves from from what we could do this it's really the case with all people with all of civilization we're never as bad as we could be we confess as Reformed Christians, we confess that all men are entirely fallen. But in our actions, we aren't as wicked as we're capable of. Occasionally, you'll see windows into the darkness of man's soul. Especially during wartime, you see POW camps and hear the stories. And now with uh, the ability to photograph... uh, and have photographic evidence of what had gone on within some of the camps, the concentration camps or the POW camps in places uh, like Japan during World War II, where you begin to see some of the darkness of man's heart, what he is capable of, the torment that he's able to inflict upon fellow man. You see that uh, throughout history, just little windows into the wickedness that man is capable of. But even the best of humanity, even the best Christians are still deeply flawed. Even after salvation, we are still fallen. We still have the old nature. We still have the ability to be evil. And so we come to God praying that he would deliver us. We come to God praying that he would restrain us. 
that he would deliver us from the temptation, that he would rescue us even from our own desires. I don't want to talk much about God's restraining grace in the unbelieving world, but I want to look here. We're going to look at this story of David and see God's restraining grace in David, who himself is a man that has a murderous heart. So let's, let's take a look at this. Up to this point, we've seen David really as a righteous man in all his ways. He is he's a man of great restraint. Just the previous chapter, we saw that. You saw, you saw him there in the cave. Saul is completely unaware. David has the jump on him. He is able to do with Saul as he wills. He's got his sword there. He's got soldiers there. Saul is absolutely helpless. He's been trying to kill David. And so in their own minds, they could justify this as a sort of self-defense, even though it wasn't immediate self-defense. It was, in a way, self-defense because they could say, well, he's been trying to kill us. He's been trying to hunt us down. That's what he's here for. And yet David says, I will not lift my hand against the Lord's anointed. He acknowledges God's sovereignty in having established Saul as king, and that it wasn't David's time yet. That even though God had anointed David, it wasn't his time yet. But now we get to see a new side of David. And this is going to be something that pops up every now and then in the narrative of David. We see him with a vengeful heart, with murder in his heart. And it is God, in God's restraining grace, that preserves David. Let's look at the, uh, the story here, how we have the setting. It begins on an ominous note. Saul, even though he is, uh, he's been the judge, he's, he's the last of the judges, he's one of the great judges, he's the kingmaker, he is anointed two kings. And he's really kind of been the glue that's been holding everything together to some degree. He's been the one who has reprimanded Saul when Saul was out of line. And now what? The great prophet, the judge, sometimes acting as priest, he's gone. So it's sort of an ominous note to begin the chapter on Samuel is dead. Now what happens? The time of the judges had really been over since Saul became king, but now it is officially done. This is the era of the kings. So David, up to this point, has been to hope for a good king. So Saul, at first, he, he starts veering off pretty quickly. He saves for just a little while. He's, he's doing what God wants, and then, and then he's, he's off the rails completely. And now David is, David is the hopeful one. He's God's anointed and he's restraining himself from evil. He's not killing Saul. He's, he's running. He's, he's a worshiper of God. He's well known. We've seen him at the, uh, at the tabernacle. He's well known in worship. He is a man of prayer. He's constantly seeking God on everything. He is a godly man. God has chosen him and said, he's a man after my own heart. This is the one I want to rule my people But David is now in the wilderness, and we're introduced to this man, uh, at first just a rich man in the wilderness. 
and then his name Nabal, and the name of his wife Abigail. So they're they're out in the outskirts of Israel and the edges of civilization. He's a rich man. He has flocks and herds, thousands of animals, uh, which of course is really what made you rich in those days, the ability to feed and to, uh, to have the, the wool and everything for that they needed for clothing and, and food and everything that was necessary there in that, in that society. That was, that was the riches. So this man is doing very well and he comes to the time of sheep shearing. So this is, this is a time of rejoicing because you're getting the profit, all of the, all the work that has been done to in raising the sheep and all of the the previous year's work in this now it's finally it's, it's sort of in uh, like the having a harvest in the with your wheat fields it's you're finally bringing it all in so it's a time of rejoicing in God's goodness you're seeing all the animals they're all brought in from the from the wilderness um, of course in those days they didn't have uh, nice fields we're used to seeing fenced pastures with green grass and they didn't have that they had to venture out farther and farther away from civilization out into the wilderness to try to find forage for the animals and so now you have all the animals brought in all the workers are brought together they're doing the shearing and so then you have a big celebration it's it's like thanksgiving day because god has been good you have all of this blessing, you have all of this, you see what, what uh, all of the riches, and um, it's, it's a time for great rejoicing, which should also be a time for great generosity as well, because you see God's outpouring of goodness, and they know where this has come from. They're Israelites, they know that all of this bounty comes from the Lord. So this really should be a time of thanksgiving to God and generosity. And uh, that's part of his wickedness here, as this man Nabal is seen as a man who is not grateful and not generous. We as Christians were called to be generous people because we understand where we got all of these things. Where did we get food? Where did we get clothing? So we looked in Luke. Jesus saying, your heavenly father knows you need these things and he will provide. He provides for the ravens, he provides, he clothes the lilies of the field. Where do we get all of this? Where do we get the, the bounty that we just enjoyed in our meal? It's from the hand of God. And as we receive, so we give. Because we have been given freely, so we give freely. We're to be a generous people. So now, now this man, he's been introduced, and David and his men, they're out in the wilderness. They're, it's, it's close to that same area. They're kind of in the, in the south, uh, uh, southeast side uh, in the wilderness. They're close to the Dead Sea and then down to the south, sweeping down uh, south of Israel. And so he's, he's in this wilderness area. They don't, obviously, they don't have permanent housing. They're, they're just living off of the land, what they can scrounge up. And so then David and his men begin to care for this man's flocks, knowing that who these sheep belong to. So perhaps they, they have a good, it appears that they have a good working relationship with the, uh, with the shepherds themselves. They know them personally. 
and they begin to take care of these these sheep. So there's there's an expectation of a return, even though they're not doing anything right now. They're not stealing the sheep, and which would be a great temptation. You find a sheep stuck out in the mountains. It's kind of away from all the other sheep, and stuff happens. You know, the coyotes get them. The sheep disappear all the time, and uh, so. But David and his men have restrained themselves. And remember, these these were not introduced to us as good, godly, straight-shooting fellows. David's men were, it was kind of a a motley group of, almost a band of brigands. It's it's a rough group of men, disgruntled and debtors. But David restrains them. It really speaks to something of his leadership and his ability to restrain his men. Then sheep shearing time comes. David has waited. They've given of themselves. They've sacrificed their time, their energy. When they could have been out foraging, they could have been out hunting for wild game or something like that, providing for themselves. They've got their families out there. Instead, they're caring for the sheep. And even here, David's really being something of a shepherd, a shepherd of the shepherds as well as the sheep. But then when it comes time to pay up, to get a reward, Nabal refuses. In his refusal, you see that he's actually quite a godless fellow. And when you pair up what Abigail knows, what his wife knows, with what Nabal says, you find that this is a man who knows exactly who David is. He knows exactly where David comes from. He calls him the son of Jesse. He knows that God has appointed him as the next king. Abigail knows it. They know the story of David and Goliath. It's obvious from her language as she speaks of him, of God slinging out his enemies, David's enemies from a sling. And she uses this language and she she knows who it is. David is well known. And there's actually sort of a progression that's been going on. Is first, it's only Samuel that knows about David. And then David finds out that he's the anointed one. And then Jonathan finds out that David's the anointed one. And then Saul, finally, we found him acknowledging, yes, David, you will reign as king. I know this. And now the people know it. So everyone knows at this point that David is anointed as the next king, but what does Nabal do? He says, who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants or slaves these days who are breaking away from their master. He treats him as a runaway slave. He deliberately insults him and say, putting all of this, all of that Saul's been doing, he throws all of the guilt on David. But when you know that God is the one who has anointed him, that Samuel has put the anointing oil on him, who are you really rejecting in this? Who is Nabal really rejecting? When he rejects the Lord's anointed one, he rejects the Lord. He's knowingly rejecting God himself and God's will. 
This is on a greater scale what we can think of when people reject Christ. He is the Lord's anointed one. He is the anointed king. So no one can say that they, well, they they love God and, and they're fine with God, but they reject Jesus. Because they are rejecting the Lord's anointed. Therefore, they are rejecting the Lord. Here we see this man, Nabal, acting as not just a fool, but a godless fool. So David's, now David's murderous heart comes out. He had no agreement. He had no contract with Nabal. He hadn't contracted to do this work. It was sort of a life-threatening situation for them. If they'd been putting all of this work into protecting the the sheep with the hope of of return for food, it it very well could be a life-threatening situation for their their children, for their families, for themselves, because they need this. They're in the wilderness. Anybody they talk to is liable to report them to Saul. And we'll see in the next chapter, once again, the Ziphites, come to to Saul and report David once again. But here, you see David taking vengeance into his own hand. Was it a good turn that Nabal had done? Absolutely not. Nabal was godless godless and foolish, but David had already recognized that the law was not in his hand. He'd already shown restraint with Saul. Now when it comes to this lesser man, Nabal, he shows no restraint. Instead, he turned to absolute bloodshed, actually imitating Saul in this, who killed the entire town of Nob. David is intent to kill every man. So those shepherds that he had been protecting, he is set now with his army to murder them. You see this, this in David, it's, it's rather shocking where his anger leads him, where his sense of self-justification, his, his revenge leads him to. When you see things like this in Scripture, you, you understand that it's not a book that is built to just glorify people. This man, he's, he's seen in Scripture, throughout the rest of Scripture, he's, he is a model of what an Israelite king should be, of what a godly king should be. But God leaves this in. So this isn't a fictional book meant to just glorify the man. Even here, you see somebody that God has expressed love for. God has said, this is a man after my heart. But he's still a sinful man. And he's still capable of murder. He is still capable of obscene sin. Imagine that. Taking out an entire family group. Abigail herself, not safe from David. Not only is he willing to do this, he's willing to lead 400 men to murder. David the leader, David the godly man, David the one who is supposed to be leading the people in righteousness. This sin is going to come up again, isn't it? 
the evil that's in his heart is going to play out in his murder of Uriah. The evil that he has is going to be passed on to his sons as Absalom murders his own brother. And David's bloodshed is going to prevent him from being able to build the temple. So you see in David that there is, even in the best person, there is still a remaining wickedness. And so David himself needs the restraint of God. He needs God. He is dependent on God's grace. It's not his own strength that is leading him into such righteousness as we saw in the the previous chapter where he spares Saul. And we're going to see him in chapter 26. See him again sparing the one who's trying to kill him. Of anybody that David could have vengeance on, it would be Saul. But it is all of grace. David needed a savior. He needed forgiveness. He needed God to restrain him. And God does that through the person of Abigail. She's quite a woman. She is quite a woman. This describes her um, as wise. She has understanding. She has insight. And she's beautiful to boot. She is, uh, this, this girl really has it all. <laughs> uh, just an impressive woman. And it, the contrast between her and her husband is just, it couldn't be more stark. The, we say that opposites attract. I think this, this had to have been an arranged marriage or something because just the foolishness and evil of this man, and it deliberately contrasts them. Abigail, beautiful, and wise, insightful, and then Nabal, the fool. Nabal, the vulgar, crass, everything bad. He just, he talks in a harsh way. He's just vile. And his name actually means in Hebrew, fool. And so I don't know if, some people say, well, that couldn't be his actual name. It must be just for literary purposes. But um, the way Hebrew works, I think it could be a, a similar sounding pronunciation that would work. And um, But his wife actually says, as his name is, so is he. Folly is his name. Folly is with him. It's quite an indictment. So Abigail, she comes here. She is, she's really acting as as David recognizes on God's behalf. She is working. God is restraining through her, using her to stop the bloodshed that David would make a black mark. As she says, she brings this out. This would be a black mark on David, on his kingship, that he had slaughtered an entire family group just out of revenge because he he wasn't given the, the food that he thought was his due. She, see, she hears from one of the servants what has happened. And she takes action. She goes, she loads up the donkeys with food. She brings a huge feast 
out there, hundreds of pounds of raisins and figs and prepared sheep. She is pacifying everyone in that group. They see that, they're hungry, they've been waiting for food, and she brings it to them. She is wise, and then she follows after them. There's almost a picture of of, uh, Jacob uh, pacifying Esau in this. And so then you see, you see uh, as Jacob sent, sent all of the flocks ahead to give as a gift to Esau. But she comes humbly. She doesn't, uh, she doesn't try, to, try to plead their cause or try to talk David down. Instead, she comes with great humility, falling at his feet and taking all the blame on herself. Did you notice that, how she did that? On me alone be the guilt. Even though she hadn't even been there, she speaks graciously. I've kind of wondered as, as I've studied Abigail whether perhaps Solomon might have had her in mind in some of the Proverbs that talk about the gracious woman, the wise woman. As she is just, the, the way that she speaks like apples of gold and settings of silver. She has words fitly spoken, and she talks him down. She talks in a in a uh, really a disarming way. How can you argue with her? She isn't yelling at him. She's not nagging him. She's not accusing him. But she comes and she lays out her case, and she points to God Himself. David is one that is fighting the battles of the Lord. She reminds him of who he is. She reminds him that he is the anointed one, that he will be king. So she reminds him of his responsibilities before God, and she reminds him that it is God who takes vengeance. I am the Lord, I will repay. It is not for us to seek vengeance. God said, God sees. God sees the injustices. Or this idea of us seeking our own vengeance, seeking fairness, acting it out on other people, it's not a biblical idea. Many movies, many books have been written with this very thing at the center. When somebody has, you see in a movie that where the... Uh, the, the hero has some, had something terrible done to him, some injustice, and then the rest of the movie is him just, he's, he's laying them down, he's taking out everybody, all of the henchmen, all of the, and finally he comes to the big, the, the boss, and, and he takes out the boss. And that's, you know, oftentimes we enjoy those sorts of movies and those sorts of books. There are quite a few, a, a, actually quite a shocking number of the stories that our society imbibes are based on revenge, taking revenge for yourself. Life's unfair, so you settle the score yourself. Abigail wisely, in a godly way, reminds David it is God who will sling his enemies out. Yes, and it really brings us into the language of the Psalms in the, in the previous chapter, David's men had told him, remember God has told you that you're going to uh, 
let's see, it's, it's in uh, chapter 24. Here's the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Now contrast that with what Abigail says. So the men are saying, yeah, you, all those psalms you sing about God taking your enemies out and the, the enemies coming to an end, now's the time. Go do it. Take your sword. We'll do it for you. Let's go shed his blood. And, and Abigail as if the men rise to pursue you and seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. In the lives of your enemies, he, he shall slay out from the hollow of a sling. And the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you, has appointed you prince over Israel. My Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience from having shed blood without cause, for my Lord working salvation himself. And so it calls it salvation here. David seeking to, really the, the sense is that he's taking the place of God. He is taking the place of God by taking this into his own hand. This is a godly woman. This is, this is something that is, really, she is, she is, she is exactly what, uh, what David needs in this. She is acting, even though he's, she's not his wife yet, acting as the, the companion that's, the, that is suitable for, for him, restraining him, taking him back when he is going to excess, when he is allowing himself to go into sin, she reminds him, of his God. She reminds him and takes him back to the promises. She takes him back and restrains him. Yes, David is the one called to be the leader. It's a good uh, reminder for husbands. God has made the woman to be a helper suitable for man. The Bible doesn't teach anything about and girl power and, and the, the feminism that we deal with today. And Paul specifically brings up the created order of God making man first, giving him orders, and then creating Eve second. So they're but they're supposed to they're meant to complement one another. They are supposed to help one another. The woman here, she is doing what she should be doing of reminding him. Yes, David is the leader here. He's doing what God has called him to do. He's preparing for that office. But now in his time of need, when he is giving himself over to sin, she is coming in and is really the tool of God's grace in David's life to restrain him. This is uh, Qualities that, that Abigail has are good to remember. Young men, as you're thinking about getting married, what to look for in a wife, a godly woman who will help you and in life to be a more godly man, who will restrain you and bring you back to Scripture, bring you back to God's Word, bring you back to God Himself. This is something to look for for women. This is something to aspire to, to be like Abigail, who knows the promises of God. She knows she's 
She's had her ear to the track. She knows what's going on. And she comes to David and reminds him. And she becomes a roadblock to what would have been murder. This would have been an albatross on David's neck for the rest of his life. Not only does God restrain through Abigail, he gives honor through Abigail as she reminds him of the place to which God has brought him. She doesn't berate him. She doesn't bring him down. She doesn't, but she reminds him of who he is before God. She lifts him up. And God is even honoring him here through this, even though it is God's own grace that has restrained him. God's own grace has restrained David here. If that servant hadn't hurt, or if that servant hadn't cared, or if Abigail had said, well, it's not my business, he's the head of the house, what can I do? If she just, you know, anything else would have ended in bloodshed. David doesn't seem really worthy of honor at this point, does he? He was very close to murder. Multiple murders. Our world, the ungodly world, knows nothing of grace. As you look at the world around, you see when someone messes up, if they say something that's unkind or say something that can be construed as Uh, as prejudice in a certain way or bigoted in a certain way. It doesn't matter if they said it 10 years ago and have repented 20 times. The world shows no grace. There is no forgiveness for certain kinds of sin in the world before the world's eyes. And yet, you see here, David, a man who... In our day, if he'd, if he'd tweeted, I'm, I'm going out to slaughter Nabal and his men, well, he would be uh, mistreated. There'd probably be protesters they'd, they'd, uh, in his yard. They'd be burning down the pizzeria down the road. They'd be, and David would forever have a black mark against his name. But God chose David. God restrains David. And God honors David. The honor that David is given is not something that he earned in himself, that he deserved. But everything in this points to God. Everything that David has, every good thing in him, is all of grace. God's saving grace that brought him to be a man after God's heart. God's restraining grace that keeps him that restrains him from sin. And this is what God does in our lives. It is His grace that brings us to Christ. It is the work of His Spirit that brings us to Him. And that work doesn't just end there. After we've been brought to Christ and the salvation that we have in Him that He did... Then he continues the work, the work of sanctification, the work that continues in our lives until we reach glory. And yes, it is glory and we will be glorified and honored for things that God did in us. Those white robes, those crowns, 
that we talked about previously. Those aren't earned by our incredible actions. They're honors of grace. They're testaments to the grace of God in Christ in us. And so every good thing, every sin that we're restrained from, it's all of grace. And even as we glory in this, as the chapter closes out, we shake our heads yet again at David. Nabal dies, some, something, heart attack, stroke, something along those lines, when he hears the news. And ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal. Again, it points to God himself, and he died. God had avenged David. And now God gives prosperity to David through Abigail. She becomes his wife. This magnificent woman, this wise woman, this beautiful woman becomes his wife. Saul had given, Saul was so convinced that he was going to thwart God's will and be able to kill David that he treated David's wife as though she was a widow. His daughter Michael, or Michal. David gives, or Saul gives her away to someone else. He's so certain he's going to kill David that he just gives her away, remarries her. No divorce necessary. So now David, his wife is living with another man. He is free to marry. God gives him Abigail. And this is entering into speculation on my part, but I wonder what David's life would have been like if he had not sinned again by the king adding wives, multiplying wives to himself, and just stayed with this wise and beautiful woman. Because immediately after, it says that uh, she followed the messengers of David and became his wife. Next sentence, David also took Ahanom of Jezreel. God gave him this gift, and then he goes and he breaks God's law from Deuteronomy. From Deuteronomy 17, the king shall not multiply wives to himself. And so you see yet another sin that David will pass on through his example to his sons. Ahinoam is then the mother of Amnon, who will rape his half-sister, Absalom's sister. And then Absalom will kill Amnon. And so this is the beginning of problems in David's family life. But even here, you see God's grace. This isn't a story about the magnificence of David as a man. It's a story about grace because neither of these women are in the line of Christ. The one that's in the line of Christ is Bathsheba. God orders redemption so that he alone gets the glory. And you see that in David's life here. David can't take credit for the goodness of his reign or for the 
line of Christ or any of that for the, the promises of God. It's all pointing to God. That's how we are. Everything good, every good gift, every perfect gift, salvation itself, every good thing that we can point to in our own lives, it's all for the glory of God. That's what we're called to, to glorify God. And not only that, but to enjoy Him forever. Let's pray. Lord, our God, we give you thanks that you have been gracious to you, to us. We thank you that everything good in us, all that is holy, all that is pure, all that is Christ-like in us, it's all of grace. Help us to remember that when we are tempted to look to ourselves and be pleased with ourselves and be pleased with our own progress in sanctification, that we would be reminded that if you did not restrain by your hand, we would soon wander off. We would soon be given over to our own sins. Oh God, we thank you that you continue the work that you have begun in us by your Holy Spirit. And we pray that you would continue that work in Jesus' name. Amen.